Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. So this week, um, we got some groceries, and Augustine finds this watermelon. He's my six-year-old, and um, he's like, I'm going to cut up the watermelon. And immediately, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bit concerned, but then he goes and grabs just a butter knife. And I'm like, hey, if you want some help with that, let me know. And he's like, no, I'm good. And so he just starts with his like, little butter knife, like working away at this watermelon. And it's super sweet and encouraging him. And uh, we're sitting there, and, and all of a sudden, he looks at me. I can tell he's like thinking about something. I'm like, I'm like what's going on? And, and he's like, why didn't Jesus, he's like, why didn't Jesus rose from the dead when he died? I'm like, well, he did. He died, and then three days later, he rose from the dead. And he's like, he's like, no, no, but why didn't he, why didn't he rose from the dead when he died? And then I'm like, oh, like, you know, why didn't, like, why did he have to die? Like, why didn't he just stop himself from dying? And he's like, yeah. And interestingly enough, that question why did Jesus have to go to the cross? What's up with his death is at the centerpiece of the chapter in Mark that we're studying this week. Mark 15 is all about the crucifixion. And Mark, in his literary style, uh, doesn't give us a ton of detail like the other gospel writers, but still presents the significance and the importance of why the cross happened. So we're going to be looking at some of those themes, but, but here's, my, here's my heart and my goal. And it's been my prayer as much as I, it's my prayer for you as well, is that when we approach a subject like the cross that has a, a lot of cultural attachment to it, from the jewelry we wear to symbols we've seen to a story we've heard or think we've heard a hundred times, there has to be a sensitivity in which we approach it. John Stott says that it was by his death that he wished above all else to be remembered. There is then, it is safe to say, no Christianity without the cross. If the cross is not central to our religion, ours is not the religion of Jesus. I love how Stott says this, that Jesus wanted his death to be the central point of our focus of remembrance of him. Meaning that the cross is something that we should revisit again and again and again. It's not something that we get to learn about and move on. It's something that's more like a gravitational pull that constantly brings us back to center. And so with that, I would love to pray. Now, I'm actually going to, we don't always do this, but I'm actually going to read the entire chapter of Mark chapter 15. And I would encourage you to engage with it in a way that's going to allow you to track with me. Um, if you're at home, maybe just kind of getting rid of distractions and closing your eyes. And if you're, if you're driving, maybe don't do the closing your eyes part, but maybe uh, just roll up the windows and silence all of the distractions and just listen. Because as much as there's some things I would like to share, it's the text itself. It's the recorded word of God that bears with it the power to change life. So as if you have a Bible, you're welcome to take it out to Mark chapter 15. I'm going to go ahead and pray, 
and then we're going to read through this chapter together and we are going to let it take its proper seat at the center of our spirituality. So Jesus, we, we recognize that it is the cross that not only is the crux on which you died, but it's the crux of our reality. It's the intersection. Lord Jesus, where we understand truth and healing and salvation, God, that without the cross, there is no Christianity. And Lord, we recognize that we come with dull ears. We come with calloused hearts. And Holy Spirit, we're asking you now that you would strip back those layers in such a way that this would be like reading this for the first time. And Lord, I pray that the ramifications and implications of what this would do would have just a far reach in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus and led him away and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison for the insurrectionists, who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release you, the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the Praetorium and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put on his clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. When they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. 
It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against, against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days? Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filling up a sponge with wine vinegar, to put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem, were also there. It was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was with him, waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked Jesus for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear what he was, that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph brought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in linen, and placed it in the tomb cut out of the rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Every gospel writer records the crucifixion. And every gospel writer records it uniquely. In Mark's gospel, it seems that there's five themes that he emphasizes more than others. I just want to walk through these five different themes. Number one, he seems to emphasize the confrontation of the governor. Secondly, the contempt of shame. Thirdly, the confession of the centurion. Fourthly, the courage of the women. And lastly, the coronation of the king. The first one that we, that we see at the beginning of the story is that Mark takes a tremendous amount of time talking about the confrontation of the governor. We have the king and the governor in the same room. Pilate was a prefect. He was a governor of Rome. He was the, essentially the operating role of Caesar in Palestine. 
He did that for about 11 years, and Palestine was kind of the low end of the totem pole as far as where you wanted to be, and many people would be elected to different regions as they grew older, but Pilate stayed there 11 years and ultimately was kicked out as um, out of politics because of his inability. Governor Pilate was not a good man. He was someone who made life for the Jews very hard, and, at, and at, in his own insecurity chose to exercise his strength, and so Mark points these two men of power in an ironic way of contrast against each other. Pilate has all of the power of the imperial, um, of the emperor. And he is insecure, he's cocky. And Jesus comes in and he has the power not just of the empire, but he has the power of the cosmos and the heavens and the earth. Yet rather than being insecure, he finds his security within the Father. Rather than being prideful, he acts with humility. And in that humility, there is a level of authority that is given over in that moment. And their interaction is incredibly strange. And it's one that Mark chose to take time on because of the audience of his gospel is, is in the city of Rome. Their following of Jesus, their, their Christianity is lived out underneath the shadow of Caesar himself. And as they are undergoing immense persecution because of Nero blaming them for the fires that spread through Rome, there's a war going on inside of them as where, who holds the power? Does Jesus hold the power? Or does Pilate, does Pilate, Caesar, does Rome hold the power? And what Mark so brilliantly displays is that the authority and the power that Jesus brings is significantly more superior than that of Pilate and that of Rome, but in a significantly different way than Rome. Rome is famous throughout history for the Pax Romana, Roman peace, meaning as long as you don't mess with us, there'll be peace. But Jesus comes as the Prince of Peace. And his peace and his emperor does not yield a sword but a cross. It does not take life but freely gives it. And this is a powerful reminder for the early church and also for every one of us who reads this text that we belong to a different kingdom because we follow a different king. And he writes says that the power of the bleeding love of God is stronger than the power of Caesar, of the law, of Mars, Mammon, Aphrodite, and the rest. This is the point. That is, that is the reason for gratitude. The battle has been won it, by the bleeding love of God. And I think that before we move on to the, the next theme we see, Mark, the, the question we must ask ourselves is, does this, does this have any sort of implication for my life? And I know one for me that I've been wrestling with is, do I live under the reality of the empire that's around me? For me, this is, this is the American nation that I'm a part of, the political system that I, was, um, that I 
that, I, that surrounds me. And, and so often we live in a world that wants to present the political powers of the day as the ultimate form of reality, the, uh, the ultimate hope for renewal. And I think what Jesus does, is he reminds us, we don't belong to this world, to the systems of this world, to the powers of this world. We belong to him, which means that the way that his empire and his kingdom works is something that we are to follow. And so practically what this might look, look like is we, as we as a nation move in and out of election cycles and in and out of 24-hour news uh, talking to us about politics and presenting that this is either the demise or the hope of our nation. As followers of Jesus, we remember we belong to a different empire. We belong to a different kingdom, and it's the one that he chose to give. The second thing that we see Mark point out is that the cross not only brought severe physical pain, but Mark seems to highlight the level of contempt and the level of shame that was brought about. As you read through this chapter, what you find is that Jesus is brought in and there's this conversation of kingship. And within the conversation of kingship, there begins to be this role play. This is the company of soldiers. A company means about 600 soldiers that they take him and they begin to start putting a purple robe on him, the, the color of royalty, and they, and they fix a crown of thorns and they, and they, and they push it into his head and, and they say the words that they would say to, to Caesar, hail Caesar, but they say, hail the king of the Jews. It says they get on their knees. It says that as they're saluting Jesus as this mocked king, it says that they would beat him on the head with a rod. They would spit on him. As it continues, it shows that in Jesus' own weakness, he wasn't even able to carry the crossbeam of his cross up the hill. And as they get up there and as he gets hoisted up onto, onto the pillar and the cross is formed, it says that people are walking, shaking their heads. It says, this is the man who said he would destroy the temple in three days and rebuild it. He says he can save everyone, but he can't even save himself. I mean, the, the level of humiliation and shame that Jesus is undergoing in Mark chapter 15 is almost unbearable to read. This is the man who has done no wrong. This is the God who formed the very mouths that would mock him and spit on him. This is the God that formed the very hands that would weave together the very thorns that would be plunged into his head. This is the God who reigns over heaven and on earth and is mocked. The level of shame that accompanies the cross is rarely considered. Oftentimes we fixate on the physical pain, which is, which is beyond comprehension. Mark doesn't really give us those details. What he does is he, he zooms in on the shame. And the reason why I think this has so much significance is because one of the greatest battles that every single human being wrestles with is the level of shame that they walk in. 
and that Jesus on the cross in the salvation he offers did not only come through some sort of physical torture but came through the bearing of shame and if he bore shame at the highest level then we have the highest hope that our shame has somewhere else to go than the shoulders that we bear them Hebrews 12 2 and 3 says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, the perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, considering him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that they will not grow weary and lose heart. I love this. He can consider him endured such opposition from sinners. What opposition? The shame that was scorned. So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. If you're watching this and that phrase, grow weary, losing heart, is something that has marked your life as of recent or just your life in general, one question that I would consider you just, just taking some inventory of your own life is, is what level of shame are you walking in? Now, now shame is different than guilt. Or guilt is something that we feel that we've done and we're, we're wrestling through that. Shame is something that we feel that we are. Shame is what happens when guilt penetrates into the deepest parts of our heart. It becomes a level of our identity. It becomes the story that we live into. And there's something about the shame that we carry, not just the decisions that we make, because oftentimes those come out of our deepest identity, but that when we live in such a way that our identity is confined to the shameful narrative that we've inherited from our family of origin, from the decisions that we've made, from the inner critic or from the enemy himself, when we live according to that shame, Hebrews 12 says, would you consider what Jesus went through? What did he go through? He went through shame. A level of shame that Mark tends to zone in on because he wants us to understand that you don't have to wear that. Jesus bore that. And oftentimes we trust Jesus with our sin but not with our shame. And the cross invites us to give both to him. Henry Nouwen says that Nobody escapes being wounded. We are all wounded people, whether physically, emotionally, mentally, or spiritually. The main question is not how can we hide our wounds so we don't have to be embarrassed, but how can we put our woundedness in the service of others when our wounds cease to be a source of shame and become a source of healing we have become the wounded healers. And this is the way of Jesus. Jesus didn't hide his wounds. He didn't say, stop saying that. He didn't stop. He, in, in the level of shame that he brought, he bore it so that we don't have to. So the wounds you carry and the wounds that I carry no longer have to be something we hide, but it could be something that brings hope. It could be something that God repurposes. It's something that God wants to use because this is exactly why Jesus came to the cross. The third thing that Mark seems to point out is the role that women played at the cross. Um, I also think this is significant because 
although men and women deal with shame, in my, in my experience, sometimes it's women who tend to bear shame at, at a very extreme level. But in this story, when Jesus is shown as the one bearing the shame, Mark chooses to highlight the courage of the women. Notice, all of the men desert Jesus, betray Jesus, disown Jesus, except the women. And Mark repeatedly talks about their role, their courageous role, in not turning their eyes away from the horrific images and the horrific sounds, but staying near. And there's something that the gospel writers want to highlight in the, within the context of a culture that very much didn't see the worth of women and belittled their significance. Yet Christianity is unique in the fact that it was built upon the courageous fidelity that women showed in that, in that time to Jesus on the cross. The next theme that Mark points out is that this is the second time in the entire gospel that someone points out that Jesus is the Son of God. The first time is in Mark chapter 8 when Peter does this in the very middle of his book. And then at the conclusion of his book, it's a Roman centurion. The literary structure itself tells the story, reveals the theme, because Peter would have been shocking enough as a, as a non-scribe, as a non-teacher of the law, being the one pointed out. But then we find that he disowns him. And then it's a Roman centurion, one of the executioners. Surely this is the Son of God. What's fascinating is that in Acts chapter 10, there's a story about a Roman centurion who wants to be baptized. We have no way of knowing if this is the same Roman centurion, but we, what we do know is that Roman centurion who wants to be baptized ends up being baptized uh, by Peter. And Peter is the one who is informing John Mark as he writes this gospel. And it just makes you wonder whether the centurion becomes nameless throughout history or whether his story continues, that there was not a profound impact for the for the, those hiding in the catacombs of Rome to hear that the one who proclaimed the gospel was himself a Roman centurion. Another really interesting note is that the one who helped Jesus carry the cross up to Golgotha was someone named Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene is in North Africa. And it says, this is the father of Alexander and Rufus. Like little, like a, it's like a little cliff note. And... Alexander, we never have mentioned in the New Testament, but Rufus, we do. In Romans chapter 16, verse 13, it says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. And again, this, this was the epistle to the church in Rome. And so Rufus is one of the members of this church in Rome that Paul is writing to. And it was his father himself that most likely carried the physical cross beam of Jesus' own, his own cross up to Golgotha. And I, there's something about the continuation of this story that I wanted to just pay attention to because the cross is not a history event. 
It is the defining moment that sets the, the trajectory of the entire church. It should be the defining moment of my life that sets the trajectory of my life. It's how I worship Jesus. It's how I love my wife. It's how I love my enemy. That there is not a single aspect of my life that is not formed by the self giving, bleeding love of God poured out for me and his church that then trickles down into every single aspect of my life, of my work, my recreation, my play, my children, my wife, my neighbors, my friends, that it is the cross itself that does not stop having these ripple effects throughout not only history, but of every single person who would follow a crucified king. Which leads to our last point. That in the mockery and in the shame, what Mark and the other Gospels are displaying is a version of a king's coronation. That it's the cross that begins and crowns Jesus as the kingly Messiah. Was he always God? Yes, from all of eternity. But it was the it was the kingly Messiah that was coronated at the crucifixion. In John's gospel, he says that when he had received the drink, Jesus says, it is finished. Without a bit, with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The last words that Jesus said. The ESV study Bible comments on it and says that it is finished, proclaims that all the work of the Father had sent him to be accomplished, was now complete. Particularly his work of bearing the penalty for sins. This means there was no more penalty left to be paid for sins, for all Jesus' suffering was finished. His kingship had begun. His rulership, his authority had been shifted from that of time of darkness to that of the kingdom of light. And what scholars have pointed out for years is this began not a decisive victory as much as it was an inauguration of victory. That this began the movement of the gates of hell no longer being able to prevail. But the kingdom of God being able to come. To be honest, I've been wrestling a bit with this sermon. Um, because it's hard, it's hard to do it justice. It's hard to do the cross justice. And I was praying. I was praying for you this morning. I said, like, Lord, Lord, what do we do? Like, how do we, how do we hear this story, maybe even hear it again, and not walk away the same? And I was reminded of just two truths that I would love for you just to walk away with today. Number one is that the cross is bigger than you think it is. And that the cross is smaller than you think it is. The first one is a challenge for you to see the work of what Jesus did on the cross in an expanded way. It's bigger than you think. The ramifications of what happened on the cross bear witness in, in all of history, in all of the cosmos, that everything shifted as a result of the cross. The sun itself stopped shining, and there is nothing, in, in despite the secular age we live in, 
It's bigger than we could ever imagine. Paul in his letter to the Colossians says this, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He is taking it, nailing it to the cross. And I love this line, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You see, it wasn't just the resurrection that shows his triumph. It was the cross itself that made a public spectacle of every power and authority in heaven and on earth. It's bigger than you can imagine. And would we pray, Lord, expand the weight of the cross in our life. But the second thing is this. The cross is also smaller than we ever dared imagine. And by smaller, I mean intimate. That it has a cosmological effect and it also has a personal one. And to have a focus on one without the other would betray the substance of the cross. You cannot think too highly of the cross and you can also not think too personally of the cross. I love what C.S. Lewis did in his writing of per Perilandra when he said this, when he died in the wounded world, he died not for men, but for each man. If each man had been the only man made, he would have done no less. There's something about the cross that if we're not careful can become a, a, love, a sense of doctrine or theology and all of a sudden we forget that that cross has, is attached, it's tethered to you to me I get to walk in fullness of joy and abundance of life as a resurrection as my end in cleanliness not in my own accord and righteousness but because of his righteousness all of this and more is because on that cross there was a sense that Jesus knew me And he knows you. And that there's something about that, these moments on the cross that I think feel so distant for us sometimes. But would you imagine with me that Jesus on that cross had you in his heart and in his mind? That somehow in the mystery of, of atonement, in the mystery of the victory of the cross, which none of us I think will ever fully know there's an intimate personal connection that was made to every single one of his children and that includes you would you just pray with me Jesus we we can't ever fathom the fullness of what the cross means but we know we want it to expand in our hearts and our minds Lord, we, we don't want to live a life of shame because, Lord, you dealt with shame on the cross. Lord, we don't want to live a life tied in with the empire of today or the politics of today because we belong to a different kingdom. Lord, we don't want to shrink back. Lord, we want to be inspired by the courage of the women. Lord Jesus, we want to 
be moved by the confession of the centurion and Lord Jesus. We want to be personally changed by the coronation of the king. And so, Jesus, we just say, may your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com.